2: Hi, and welcome to the Adrenaline Show here on Fairfax County Community Access Television. Our guest today is Lyle Nemberson, author of Buying and Collecting Antique Oriental Carpets. Lyle, let's just jump right in here. What should people look for in a carpet?
3: Wool is important, Mimi. There were many different grades of wool. The best wool possesses a very high lanolin content, making it extremely lustrous and giving a radiance. Lyle,
2: I hate to break in, but, um, Can you pick up the energy just a little bit?
3: I don't know what you mean.
2: Um, you know, like a a little more pizzazz or or something. Uh, Tell me about color.
3: The quality of color, its radiance, and level of nuance within each color is
2: centrally important in... Oh my god, what is a poisonous snake doing in the studio? Where? Sorry, false alarm. Tell me about aesthetics.
3: You gotta ask yourself, does the rug possess an overall balance and harmony between its various motifs? Because a lot of people wind up paying good money for crap. Rugs woven before the commercial period took hold, roughly circa 1900 or earlier, are the most desirable because of their much greater originality Purer, more beautiful, naturally dyed colors.
2: Holy leaping mother of Pete, the curtains are on fire! Help! No, wait, it was just the way the shadows were playing across them. How is the wool dyed? You gotta have
3: natural dyes or the carpet is nothing more than overpriced decoration. Beyond that, various dyers had varying levels of skill and invested different lengths of time in dyeing the.
2: It's an axe-wielding escaped psychotic killer in a blood-stained bunny suit!
3: You're just trying to get my adrenaline pumping.
2: No! This time I- (laughs) Oh, never mind. Lyle is dead, so here's a show about adrenaline. And now he had to stop playing extreme backcountry scrabble... Colin McEnroe.
4: I really could not handle the adrenaline of that. You do it on like a snowmobile. Uh, and, but it's Scrabble. Uh, all right, we are here to talk about adrenaline today. It's a term, it's a word people throw around a lot. We talk about it all the time. Uh, do a simple Google search of it or look up quotes on adrenaline. You'll find all these actors and musicians and athletes uh, and, and writers, writers talking about how they use adrenaline, how adrenaline gets them going. Um, and it caused us to wonder whether or not it's really adrenaline. Uh, and it also caused us here at the show to realize We don't really know that much about it. It's a word we throw around all the time without necessarily understanding what that system is, how it actually works, what else is involved. And the more we looked at it, the more we thought, well, it's adrenaline, but it's sort of not exactly adrenaline. It might be some of the things that come after adrenaline. So uh, we've assembled some guests here to talk to you about it. Uh, With us is David Swink. He's a crisis management consultant. Uh, He's a former director of the National Institute of Mental Health Training Program in Psychodrama and Group Psychotherapy at St. Elizabeth. Hospital in Washington D.C. Uh, and uh, Brian Hoffman, Brian Hoffman, former uh, chief of medicine at the VA Boston Healthcare System, and currently professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Uh, he's the author of Adrenaline. Uh, so we've got uh, two adrenaline experts. A little later on, you'll meet uh, a self-professed adrenaline junkie. That's a thing people call themselves these days. Uh, we'll talk about whether or not that's exactly uh, quite right. But uh, maybe just uh, Brian Hoffman, just to begin, uh, w- what is adrenaline and I- I think a lot of people talk about it. They probably, like me, didn't really know exactly where, even in the body, their adrenal glands are located. So uh, give us a quick tour of that system.
5: Yes, thank you very much, and I'm delighted uh, to be with you this afternoon. Uh, So adrenaline is a small chemical that's made in the body and was discovered uh, around 1895. And you're quite right, it comes in the adrenal glands. Uh, The adrenal glands... Uh, were only discovered in about the 15th century. They'd been missed by uh, Greek anatomists for uh, millennia. Uh, But the adrenals had no known function until uh, the 19th century when there was some evidence that disease in the adrenal glands led to death, and that's now called Addison's disease. But what glands actually did was a mystery uh, until uh, the discovery of adrenaline, which is the first hormone In other words, it's a chemical that's made in the gland, and the brain signals the adrenals to uh, pour adrenaline into the blood. And then it goes off to uh, activate uh, organs through the body, particularly uh, the heart, uh, to uh, prepare us to respond to stressful stimuli.
4: So if, if we could, um, instead of letting it go into the venous system, if we could just catch a little, little of that adrenaline in a vial as it got pumped out of the gland, would it be just a, a clear liquid? What would it look like?
5: Well, it's, it's, a, um, it's a chemical that uh, actually can form crystals. That's how it was purified from uh, uh, pounds and pounds of uh, uh, cattle adrenal glands uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And it's just like a chemical that would look like salt or something mm. something like that.
4: All right. So, um, David, we should talk a little bit about why we have an adrenal system. Obviously, it's something that's um, useful to us under certain circumstances. And those circumstances are, are even circumstances that you've tried to assimilate uh, to help law enforcement people uh, to prepare uh, for moments like this. But before we even get into that, so, uh, David, tell us why the adrenal system helps us. What's it good for? Well, for thousands and thousands
1: of years, it's, it's kept us alive. It's responsible for our fight-or-flight um, system, our sympathetic nervous system. So whenever we perceive a threat, whether it's real or imagined or just thought of, uh, our fight-or-flight response uh, takes effect. Those chemical compounds are released, and that sends... Energy to our large muscles, as Brian said, it speeds our heart up, It prepares us to, to fight a threat. And in, you know, ancient days, that threat came from animals and members of other tribes. Today, It could even come from your boss giving you a bad performance review, but our behavior in some ways is going to act the same, and the chemicals that are released are going to react the same, whether it's the uh, snake falling from the curtain in your studio there or whether it's a, uh, a person
4: who is angry at us. Um, David, are we kind of linguistically generalizing? When we say adrenaline, it seems to me, I mean, really what we're talking about is that whole stress reaction that involves maybe 30 different chemicals and and our heart rate increasing, our veins constricting, our blood glucose is going up, pupils dilate, muscles tense, palms sweat. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here. And do we kind of artificially cram it all under that one umbrella term, adrenaline? Absolutely, I mean brian's the the
1: pharmacology expert here, but I mean nobody can even begin to imagine the complexity except maybe Brian or somebody who studied this for a living of what goes on in the human body and brain when this uh impacts us, and we're only beginning to learn you know all of the neural connections in our brains that take place during this response, so it's just a lot easier to call it an adrenaline rush, and it's been popularized. Um, And and Brian talks about this in in the book that he wrote by by media. And, you know, it's just a, a simplification for that heart pounding thrill that we get when we're scared or excited.
4: I mean Brian, I, I just in preparation for the show did kind of the same thing that we 're talking about here, which is just just to see how people talk about it and for example the the baseball pitcher Pedro Martinez said, "Well, I, I think the adrenaline helps me concentrate while i 'm on the mound well that 's kind of unlikely right there There is a symphony, an orchestral set of reactions uh, in in the nervous system, in the brain uh, that that maybe start. Somewhere with the amygdala and get down to the adrenal glands, but whatever it is that's helping Pedro concentrate, that kind of comes later in that symphony.
5: Yes, I think, and I agree with what uh, David said. I think it's important to distinguish two things: what does adrenaline do to the body? And uh, I think it's the easiest way to think about it is that, that we've evolved uh, to op- try to optimize our physical performance, and adrenaline modulates. Uh, organs throughout the body to help squeeze the, the best juice we can out of our heart and our muscles so that we can optimally respond uh, to threats. But it doesn't uh, trigger the emotions that lead the body, say, to want to run away from a saber-toothed tiger. That comes from the the brain, and the brain signals the body to release adrenaline and activate other pathways uh, for optimal physical performance but it's a I think a myth that adrenaline release causes us to feel excited or be able to concentrate better those things originate in the brain and the brain as you mentioned signals then the body to do certain things one of them is to release a lot of adrenaline in, in certain circumstances.
4: So, David, one of the things that you have done uh, is work with agents for the CIA, the Secret Service, law enforcement groups, because you can train people and on, on stuff. You can teach people in classroom situations. You can even run them through obstacle courses and stuff like that. But it's it's hard to simulate the kind of thing that Brian's talking about right here. It's hard to get somebody uh, feeling some of those symptoms. And when you're feeling some of those symptoms, it's really, really different. It could be better different. It could be worse different. But it's different. So, so how how do you How do you manage to to create that artificially uh, in somebody who needs to be trained for it? Well, we create uh,
1: situations that we call state dependent learning, which we try to simulate the environment as closely as possible to where they're going to have to recall and enact the behavior which is usually in a fairly dangerous situation where people are shooting at you or holding hostages or Threatening to kill somebody or walking into a domestic disturbance. So we create live simulations with, you know, real people taking the roles of whome whatever we're teaching the deal with. If it's a hostage situation, they see a a, a hostage situation. It can range from something that happens in a classroom to a full-scale simulation with a SWAT team and a command center and everything else. And What we're trying to do and what law enforcement and other military and and people who work in those high-stress environments have to do is to increase what we call their situational awareness. When our fight-or-flight response kicks in, we have a tendency to narrow our field of vision. Our auditory cortex shuts down a little bit so we don't hear as well because we're focused on getting rid of the threat. And so we're trying to expand their situational awareness by training in the state that they're doing so they can access other parts of their brains that they really need other than those fight or flight things like the ability to hear, the ability to talk. Um, Because in those high stress situations, most of the time, you know, for thousands of years, we didn't talk our way out of it. We fought our way out of it. And actually, when we started working with police back in the early 70s, Most of the time, they did fight their way out of it. They use force, and what we've been teaching them for the last 35 or 40 years is to use their emotional intelligence, not their physical force.
4: Yeah, so, Brian, in some ways, this... In the ways that David's talking about right now, this system is a little bit outmoded. I mean, it's uh, you know the way that you described it initially. The adrenal system um, is there to squeeze optimal performance out out of things like the heart, uh, the whole cardiovascular system, so that if you had to run away or you had to fight off an attacker, you know you'd be uh, getting absolutely the very best that you can get. Um, Whereas really, what we need in a lot of situations right now is that kind of coolness, the and detachment and ability to think clearly and sort out best options uh, the way that David's talking about. So, Brian, I'm assuming that's not what the adrenal system does at all.
5: Right. Uh, I think we're we're, humans are equipped with the same um, primitive lower brain that dinosaurs had and lizards had. And we have a very thin uh, cortex uh, to filter what comes out of it. And if you just follow like election campaigns and so on, you see the primitive nature of the human brain. Uh on the other hand, you know, in athletics, uh uh in, in in many situations where people are called on to do extraordinary things, the physiology of the adrenal gland uh is still very important, or in in coping with uh uh the stress of illness, for example, our capacity to maintain homeostasis, the internal milieu of the body in a normal state is very dependent on these things. So if we paralyze these processes, we would be unfit
4: the um one thing that we hear about sometimes Brian is what's called hysterical strength, and people uh you, you hit one hear stories of you know the the seventy five year old woman who lift the car off of her son uh and and this is often attributed to adrenaline and i this would be an extraordinarily difficult thing to study you 'd have to uh, put a car on top of somebody and, and make somebody else uh, really want to rescue them do we, it seems i don 't know based on what I read about adrenaline it seems among other things, unlikely that it would get into the system fast enough to do this thing that people talk about?
5: Well, it certainly gets into the system quickly, within seconds. Mm. Uh, But you're quite right. Uh, It won't help someone escape from a polar bear or a shark, which are the things you read in the newspaper. Mm. But the uh, increase in capacity is is real. And, in fact, uh, these are drugs of abuse in Olympic uh, competition and screened for. I had my own adrenaline experience. I was riding a bicycle in California, and an angry motorist uh, threatened me. Mm-hmm. And so I rode off as quickly as, could, as I could. And uh, the speed I went at was far higher than I would ever achieved and have ever done since. Uh, so I think some of these things are real, but they're subtle. Yeah, uh, They're not the little old person lifting a car. <laughs>
4: All right. Let's take a break here. We're talking about adrenaline. Uh, we're live here in the afternoon. If you have a question, why don't you tweet it at us at WNPRColumn? We'll be back with Brian and David. It's the adrenaline. I keep
1: it keeping on Take What you got? Got your rhymes. They slipping on. It's the adrenaline. And why you slipping on?
4: This is our show about adrenaline. We're talking to David Swink, uh, a crisis management consultant, uh, and uh, to Brian Hoffman, who is currently professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the author of Adrenaline. So, um, David, it seems as though we live in a culture that really celebrates uh, adrenaline, right? There's People brag about being adrenaline junkies. Uh, you could argue that many of Donald Trump's critiques of Jeb Bush, you know, that he was too low energy, kind of fall into that category. You turn on the TV set, there's commercials for energy drinks that, that Give you a rush. Um, this is sort of different from obviously what people uh, are seeking when they do yoga or, or meditation. Um, what, why, why? Do you have any theories about why our culture exalts that adrenalized state so much? Well, it,
1: it's a relatively recent phenomenon. I I started skydiving when I was eighteen years old, and I remember for for 10 or 15 years after that people would just think i was absolutely crazy and they would say things like do you have a death wish and they would sort of make fun of me for doing that and with the advent of social media and youtube um now people are glorified for doing uh, you know what uh, what professional risk takers <laughs> would consider crazy reckless behavior. You have shows like Jackass or, you know, craziest stunts or so people are actually uh, making money from lives, you know, or, or recorded uh, websites where they're doing crazy things. But, you know, the the television, the X Games, all of these things, you know, the uh, the sponsorship of, of energy drinks, those sorts of things have have really brought it into a a more positive social context.
4: But there is a downside, obviously, to some of those things well let 's talk about the downside brian um there there are significant downsides i mean uh, adrenaline isn 't a totally beneficial uh, chemical if you're if you 're getting too much of it I, I gather it 's even possible to be literally scared to death
5: yes uh, it 's kind of like the Goldilocks principle uh, too much or too little is is undesirable, so there is there is uh Good evidence from epidemiology and from clinical research that people uh, can be frightened to death and adrenaline may be a very important uh, mediator in that. Like uh, heart attacks and sudden death go up in situations where the stock market changes dramatically, earthquakes, uh, important soccer games, uh, that sort of thing.
4: And, and you can use it deliberately to kill somebody, right? Wasn't there a a, a serial killer nurse who used adrenaline to kill her patients, Brian?
5: Yes. Um, it's a very sad uh, case of a trusted uh, nurse who injected adrenaline into the IVs of of, of patients. And her motivation was never clear, uh, but she was convicted of, of killing many people and probably killed many more. And one of the um, U.S. attorney is involved in a case called adrenaline a perfect poison because the it the, um, uh, looks natural mm. and it's very hard to, to measure in the blood after someone's died. And adrenaline concentrations go up very high when people uh, get very sick and adrenaline is used medically to restart the heart after it stops. So all those things uh, confound, uh, you know, trying to prove that uh, someone had an an injection of adrenaline
4: so, so we don't always want adrenaline, adrenaline, even for high performance uh, tasks. Brian, I know you've been told by one Navy sniper that they really try are trying. Some athletes are trying to get adrenaline into their system artificially. They're trying to keep it out art- artificially.
5: Yes, well, some some it's one of the unusual performance drugs where you can be dismissed for too much adrenaline for taking ad- adrenaline related drugs. But also, uh, 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 shooters, archers, uh, pistol shooters. Uh, are banned from using drugs that block the effect of adrenaline because it 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 can reduce the tremor of our hands and allow us to shoot uh, straighter. And apparently, uh, many snipers um, uh, use the adrenaline uh, adrenaline blocking drug to get a better shot, even though it may slow down their running away after they've um, completed their mission. Even um, it's an open secret in orchestras that many musicians. Use a, a drug to block adrenaline, uh, propranolol, uh, to reduce the tremor of the hand so that their performance can be uh, improved.
4: So let's talk about, David, let's talk about some of the people who want adrenaline or they think they want adrenaline. And, and, you know, we can even go back to Pedro Martinez. He's typical of a lot of athletes who really talk about uh, a sense of uh, increased focus or flow uh, in certain states, which they attribute to adrenaline. I'm assuming it's really more the after effects of adrenaline, things that that maybe start up in the amygdala or somewhere in the brain, get rocketed down to the adrenal system, a whole bunch of other things happen. And pretty soon you've got, some of these more beneficial and attractive and pleasure inducing uh chemicals released in the brain is is that where this whole idea of flow and concentration come from exactly
1: and it's it's all about finding the right cocktail uh adrenaline is the the one of the, the first chemicals that is released but other things like nitrous oxide comes into effect dopamine endorphins and what what high-performance people, whether it's a, a, a law enforcement officer or a big wave surfer or a surgeon, what they're looking for is a state of flow, which Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi did a lot of research into that field starting years ago. And he finds that this is a state that comes after that initial uh, uh, adrenaline rush, if you will, where people feel totally immersed in what they're doing. They're incredibly focused. They don't have any observing ego to critique themselves, but everything happens automatically. They don't have to think about it. And incredible sports performances happen in this state. Artists experience flow, but it's sort of it's sort of kick-started by adrenaline. And and one of the things that uh Chick sent me high. Found out was that people have a tendency to be happiest in that state of flow.
4: And so, and some of that's purely chemical, right? We're talking about the release of things like oxytocin and dopamine, which has yes. been referred to as the Kim Kardashian of brain chemicals because yes. it's so associated and with you know,
1: pleasure. Seeking. And you, you mentioned uh, yoga and meditation sort of being on the opposite extre- extremes of adrenaline, but that's part of the cocktail that a lot of high-performance athletes now are using to find more of that relaxed state along with adrenaline. So you you have the military teaching uh, combat breathing. You have professional football teams doing yoga. you uh, You have a lot of people doing meditation to be able to focus in those you know, fight-or-flight states to, to help increase that level of focus. So, I, Dr., I, yeah, I go ahead, with, Brian.
4: I agree
5: with that. I, my main hobby is fly fishing, mm-hmm. and I get into a state of flow with that, and hours go yeah. by without recognizing anything. I, uh, that's not a high adrenaline state. I, I think these, these uh, things are chemistry that goes on predominantly in the brain mm-hmm. rather than in the rest of the body.
4: Well, you know, and I wanted to ask Brian Hoffman, it seems to me that not all bodies are created equal anyway, and then there's neuroplasticity that can also alter the way the brain actually works. But, I mean, look, I, I'm not like Brian. I'm not like David. I don't jump out of planes. I don't go on roller coasters. I'm not, <laughs> I don't go uh, in shark cages. I don't pay thousands of dollars to go on a vacation where I'm lowered into the water with great white sharks swimming around my cage. I don't do that. And, and I'm assuming that m- some of it's my psychology actually sort of who I am as a person, but some of it, I would assume, might have to do with adrenal receptors or dopamine receptors. So I would assume not everybody's wiring is exactly the same. David may have a system that activates better under these situations.
5: Yes, I think you're quite right. And to me, fly fishing is the height of, uh, of excitement.
4: Yeah, I would do that with you, but not uh, yeah, the other thing. <laughs>
5: that I, I've seen some work years ago, and I haven't followed it, that some of this may relate to the reticulo-activating center in the, in the brainstem. That's uh, a system that, that stimulates our cortex to stay, stay awake and alert, and some people have a very active one, so they don't need external stimuli to feel uh, alert and, and ready to go, whereas other people may uh, depend more on external stimulation to activate that. And apparently there are differences in how much anesthetic drug these two different types of people require to be uh, knocked out. So I agree with you. I think we're all wired up uh, differently. There are polymorphisms in, in many genes and in hormone synthesis and so on. And these play a big role in determining what type of person we are, obviously, along with our learning experience uh, and what we're exposed to during life.
4: So, David, let's talk about PTSD for a second. So uh, PTSD is interesting because, in fact, what happens is you you have the initial experience which stimulates this entire system that we're talking about, you know, the amygdala, the adrenal glands, blood pressure, heart rate, palm sweating, all that kind of stuff. It, it happens for real in this real, um, uh, real setting. But then what happens is, for a lot of people who have PTSD, something that's really a kind of further down the continuum, not the same set of stressors, but sufficiently resembling the initial stressors a reminder a trigger of those initial stressors sets off the whole system and at least one study I saw done in the 90s suggested that maybe because of the neuroplasticity of the brain it actually reconfigures to become more sensitive to that kind of adrenal surge uh, that that started off this whole chain in the first place and you thought, I know you deal once again with people who who need to be able to not have PTSD what's your current state of wisdom about this well you've mentioned the amygdala a couple of times which is a there we
1: actually have two of them they're little almond shaped uh, organs in our the uh, very lower part of our brain that are responsible somewhat for our fight-or-flight response they have a lot of connections through our brain um, and when that is under fire when we're under a lot of stress and our fight-or-flight response gets triggered a lot It loses a lot of connections to the prefrontal cortex, which allows us to control our emotions, to make executive decisions, and it creates a cycle of stress, and a lot of people who have experienced trauma uh, get in that cycle of stress. The amygdala also helps consolidate emotional memory, so if you've had a very traumatic experience, it Increases its connections to the hippocampus, which is responsible for a lot of our our memory storage and consolidation, um, and um, that is a very powerful thing. There's a there's a, a a concept called flashbulb memory, and when I tell you what that is, everybody will know exactly what it is, and everybody can pretty much remember where they were on 9/11. Mm. If you're a baby boomer, you know exactly where you were when you heard that President Kennedy was shot. That's an emotionally conditioned memory, and there's some evidence, and, and perhaps Brian, you, you probably know a lot more about this than I do, that it, things like adrenaline and norepinephrine help consolidate those memories uh, deeper than if we weren't under those sorts of things. And 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 people now are experimenting with new drugs that are, are like beta blockers that that uh, decrease those consolidations of emotional memories as a type of treatment for things like post-traumatic stress disorder.
4: Yeah, Brian, did you want to elaborate on that, that whole memory consolidation thing? Uh,
5: yes, I've, I've seen some work with uh, uh, beta receptor blockers, drugs mm-hmm. like uh, propranol. The the idea being, as um, David was, was alluding to, that perhaps when someone, say, a soldier was ex- exposed to extraordinary stress. They might be able to take a medication that would make that memory less less embedded and less a problem um, in the future, uh, because we really need to to try to have new measure, new therapeutic measures for PTSD, which is a a very major uh, clinical problem for many
4: people. Right, and it's sort of the it's an evolutionarily adaptive system working really well in its old way and not so well in its new way. I mean, in in all the ways that, David, you're saying, back in the grasslands of Africa, it wouldn't have been adaptive to have to see everything about a saber-toothed tiger attack to know you were being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger. You needed to be able to read some signs that were maybe familiar from prior experiences, piece those together, and activate that system. So, So back in those days, it was really good that just a hint of maybe what you'd experienced before would be enough to tell you to start running, get ready to fight now of course because we were bombarded with so many stimuli it's not so great if that system kicks on exactly and we and in modern society people are prone to
1: having amygdala hijacks which is an emotional hijack where you respond from your primitive fight or flight response and what that looks or sounds like is you you get triggered by your boss or by a coworker or by somebody that cuts you off in traffic And you just respond from your amygdala. So, you know, how many people are killed in road rage accidents because of amygdala hijacks? And even short of that, how many times have you done or said something that damaged a relationship because you were coming from your amygdala versus your prefrontal cortex, which analyzed that and said, hey, I'm angry. I need to think about what I'm going to say here.
4: Um. Very uh, First of all, I want to say one thing about the um, memory consolidation thing. In our final segment, you're going to hear a guy who is kind of an adrenaline junkie, and he keeps talking about it. I've already taped this interview, so he keeps talking about it in terms of stories he can tell. It makes good stories, and I think that has something to do with how vivid the story is in his brain because of all yes. that memory consolidation stuff that we're talking about. So that really fits in. You know, we've only got a couple of minutes left, Brian Hoffman, but I, I just I feel like we ought to say at least one thing about the fact that um, adrenaline sometimes referred to as epinephrine. I mean, it's also used medically to save people's lives, right? You see this. Uh, there's all kinds of ways in which a sudden administering of, of adrenaline is a lifesaver.
5: Yes, that's correct. I mean, adrenaline itself is, is the first-line treatment for anaphylaxis, which is a very ser- serious uh, allergic reaction that can be life-threatening. It's still used to try to restart the um, heart of people who've had a cardiac arrest. And even more important, we have hundreds and hundreds of drugs that are modifications of the adrenaline molecule to improve it uh, to treat diseases like asthma and also, as we've talked about, to block some of the uh, effects of adrenaline, like the beta blockers are uh, essential medications in the treatment of heart failure and uh, hypertension.
4: You know, we've only got about two minutes left, uh, Brian, but uh, you, know, you alluded to this at to this the beginning, and so maybe in 60 to 90 seconds. Wh- why did people go looking for this in the first place? How was it, why was adrenaline discovered? How did anybody know it was there?
5: Well, there was a lot of excitement uh, about 150 years ago when a physician named Brown Sicard said he, at the age of 72, had been uh, rejuvenated by injecting himself with ex- extracts of testicles. And that led lots of people to be very interested in what could glands do. And a physician in a small town in England uh, reputedly gave his son an extract of adrenaline of of an adrenal gland and thought that uh, his blood pressure went up and an an artery narrowed, uh, which was not a very strong basis. But he went up to London, and a professor of physiology showed that. ground-up adrenal glands, raised blood pressure. It was the first effect ever seen of a a gland in a physiological way, and that led to enormous excitement to purify it, find out what it looked like, and study uh, how it worked.
4: You know, we're going to have to stop there, but Brian Hoffman, author of Adrenaline, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and David Swink, uh, who is uh, former director of the National Institute of Mental Health Training Program in psychodrama and group psychotherapy. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, both of you today. Special thanks to Josh Nalea. Uh, great to have Josh Beck producing with us right now. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and then you'll meet a self professed adrenaline junkie who may or may not understand what's going on uh, in that whole system. <laughs>
2: these announcements more exciting i'm gonna jump out of an airplane right before i do them three two one today's show was produced by josh Nilea and me kione wolf greg hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at wnpr colin our interns are stephanie reef and ross levin the part of bill curry was played by jackie wilson for show pages articles and videos of the here and now staff wait i have to pull the ripcord cord now Whew. tomorrow on the show i'm gonna try this with a plane actually up in the air Also tomorrow, our salute to underdogs. And now, back to Colin.
4: We've been talking a lot about the science of adrenaline, uh, but we need to talk also about the practice of adrenaline, uh, about people who seek it uh, for various reasons and people who ride that curve. Uh, Joining us now is Chris Graham, a freelance writer for The Morning News. Uh, He's the author of Diary of a Post-Adrenaline Junkie. Chris Graham, welcome to this conversation.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here.
4: So your seeking out of adrenalized experiences can range from sliding uh, down a mountain in Nicaragua, a volcanic mountain, very fast, to more human experiences with sort of state actors, uh, ranging from uh, attending a Ku Klux Klan uh, Congress that you're really not supposed to be at, or uh, being interrogated by Israeli security at an airport. What do these all have in common for you?
0: They seem at least at the outset to uh, present really good story opportunities. So they're the sorts of experiences where it seems very kind of outrageous and uncomfortable and that not very many people would seek it out. And so by seeking it out and going through it, you end up having a really good story at the end to tell. I suppose also they don't re- in certain cases, they don't really seem actually dangerous. Uh, although not not always. The volcano boarding one was a little bit dicey.
4: Right. So in the, the volcano uh, boarding story, and I, I think you prefaced that by telling us about a story about a guy setting a land speed record on a bicycle by going very fast down something and just, you know, uh, winding up having to be attended to by a medical personnel that this and, and even your experience sliding down this volcano on a piece of sheet metal. Well, I'll let you tell it, but it didn't go smoothly at all.
0: Uh, no, it definitely did not go smoothly. And uh, maybe I'll just set the stage. Sure. So the, the volcano in, in Nicaragua is called Cerro Negro, and it's this very even and slidable slope that's over a kilometer long. And lots of people who are speed freaks have seeked this out as a place to break land speed records. And there was a guy, I think in 2007, called Eric Barone, who uh, brought a souped-up mountain bike there and traveled at something like 170 miles an hour down the slope uh, shortly after he passed his radar gun the bike disintegrated and he was in the hospital for several months ironically while he was in the hospital recovering somebody else came to Saraniguru and broke his record what i did was go and do something called volcano boarding uh, which involves a sort of jerry rigged toboggan with sheet metal on the bottom and then a piece of formica or countertop underneath where your uh, where your bum goes and the idea is you hike up to the top of the top of the volcano And you sit down on this toboggan, and if you do that, uh, you can go plenty, plenty fast. And it ended up, the slope is actually convex. So it starts off at the top, and it's about 35 degrees. And then when you get about halfway down, it increases to about 40 degrees, um, which means you can't actually see all the way down from the top of the mountain. You kind of disappear at one point. You also pick up speed dramatically after you go over this ledge or this tilt. It's very sort of jostling. The wind is blowing very hard. I sort of failed about halfway down, and the board went sideways, and I flew off. And it turns out, thankfully, that volcanic ash and stone are actually a lot like powdered snow. So your face and neck just kind of sink into the mountain, and you spin around very fast. Uh, And eventually you come to a stop and scan your body and see what's, what's still there, what's not broken.
4: Now, obviously, a lot of this is happening in in the the chronological equivalent of a series of eye blinks. So it's kind of hard maybe for you to pin down what's going on inside you, what's going on inside your brain while this is going on. One thing we know from preparing for the show is that adrenaline junkie is sort of a slight misnomer. You're probably not addicted to the adrenaline. It's a fairly unpleasant experience. What you get addicted to is this symphony of neurochemicals uh, in your brain that respond to the adrenaline and try to make you feel better. But so, I mean, do you do you remember first of all uh, the unpleasant rush of adrenaline while you were doing this, uh, or or maybe seconds before the guy took his foot off your board and you went sliding down there? And, and do you remember how you felt afterwards?
0: Yeah, definitely. So that's a really good question. Actually, there's a lot of trepidation at the top of the mountain, and if you don't go first, you can see a couple of people do this. And you're holding your board, and it's really windy. There's actually steam coming out of the top of the volcano if you kick down far enough. And as you watch people go down the mountain, you literally can see them disappear. So they're just sort of sliding down, and then all of a sudden they just vanish. And then five or ten seconds later, they come out the bottom. So you're feeling like butterflies in the stomach, something like this. Then you go and you're doing it and there's a lot to kind of organize at first. So you're trying to figure out this new skill, right? How to steer, how to turn, how to balance. And so I guess you're sort of sufficiently distracted at the beginning that you're not really feeling any discomfort. You're kind of getting the hang of it, but then you get it sufficiently sorted out and then you just pick up speed dramatically fast. But for those few seconds, it is totally terrifying and very uncomfortable. What I was thinking after it was over, you know, I sort of got up, did a body scan, and I was sore. I had some sort of road rash on my leg and my arm, but I was okay. But what I thought immediately was, oh, I wish it had been a bit more dramatic, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, so I fell, and I had a, a little bit of an injury, and I I went pretty fast, but I, I didn't break the record that day. You know, I wasn't the fastest person, and also I ended up not having the best fall and in injury. And so after it was over and we're driving back to the town, I was thinking, uh I wish I could have had a little bit of an extra tumble.
4: So you seem to be uh, describing this uh, stuff, Chris Graham, uh, repeatedly in terms of storytelling, stories that you can subsequently write or tell, uh, the drama in which those stories might be infused. But, I mean, it's, boy, there's lots of other ways to tell stories where you don't put life and limb and safety and sanity at risk. And you d- you have repeated this process of putting yourself in a position where either because of some physical danger like the one you just described or because of some interpersonal danger, I mean, sneaking into a Ku Klux Klan Congress, if I were to do that, if I were to drive off the paved road into the backwoods uh, where they were all meeting there, my heart would be racing, I'd be sweating, uh, my 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 blood pressure would be spiking. Uh, and then when I got through the whole thing, yeah, I probably would get this huge neurochemical payoff like oh boy you got through it that's good that's great but I guess one question I'm asking you is can you imagine a year of your life in which nothing like that happened to you like in which you just sort of were teaching at a prep school somewhere and you just didn't seek out stuff like that I mean how how true is the word junkie
0: yeah part of the answer is actually gonna be very personal so when I when I first started doing these things the first one occurred, I think, I think it was the when we were in, traveling around in the Middle East and we went to Israel, and we had that sort of very tumultuous experience. We had it, and then I, I got a real kick about telling the story to people, and so I thought I should seek out more of these opportunities because I really like the storytelling thing. And so that was sort of the impetus at first, and there followed a, a string of these adventures, the KKK thing with the, with the volcano boarding and, and this sort of thing. And I started telling a lot of stories about them. And here in Toronto, where I live, there's a big storytelling community. And after a while, it started to seem almost a bit too easy. So one of the things that's great about these stories is that almost anybody can tell a good story about volcano boarding. Mm -hmm. Almost anybody can tell a good story about sneaking into a Klan rally. It's much more difficult to tell a good story uh, when there's no adrenaline involved, Mm -hmm. when it's a bit more mundane. So uh, telling story after story after story you start to pay less attention to the facts and more to your craft. And so are you sufficiently skilled as a storyteller to make people feel compelled and riveted by, you know, a dinner, a dinner occasion or, uh, I don't know, a first day of school or or something like this. So all of that was kind of happening. And then my mom got very sick. She had brain cancer and was very sick and ultimately passed away in September of last year. And as a result of that, there was a, you know, there was an 18-month, Kind of moratorium on doing anything kind of adventurous. So it has it actually has been a year, uh, a year and a half of no, uh, or no uh, story-based adrenaline, and it's been okay.
4: Yeah, but the other part of that, and and in your uh, in the piece in the morning news. Um, you use the phrase "bucket list." I think you say that a lot of people have had on their bucket list something like what you were going to be doing there. That's the other part of this, right? That there's this other kind of metronome ticking away, saying your time on Earth is finite. I mean, you just you just learned that in a very painful way, and so I think maybe one of the reasons people seek these adrenalizing experiences, in which they sometimes come right up to the lip of death, and then have this incredible kind of bodily orchestral. Uh, set of reactions to it. it, has something to do with our awareness that that we are going to die at some point, and and that that we're kind of experiencing, we're almost practicing, uh, we're, we're almost uh, doing something that reminds us a, a little bit of that. And it, it feels as though we're also maybe snatching a little victory out of this whole process.
0: Yeah, you know, I completely agree. And, you know, in a way, a lot of the, there's a way to see all of the stuff that I was sort of doing that got written about in the piece as kind of a reaction to my previous life. So, you know, I started doing all of that stuff in my mid-20s. But prior to that, I basically did nothing but go to school, study very hard, then go to law school, and then practice law in New York City. And so it was a very regimented, conservative, straightforward existence. I think you're, you're right. A lot of, you know, the idea of the bucket list, kind of re- relates to the idea that we might die soon or, or at some point we're going to be done and so we want to get as much out of our time as we can. And for me, there was a little bit of a springboard because I was, you know, I spent most of my young and then adult life, you know, just avoiding bucket lists. So I guess I was ready to break out.
4: Yeah, and, well, you know, you said that the first experience that you had was sort of by accident, uh, the one where you were interrogated uh, in Israel. Although, you know, we have to say that the plan was to fly into Israel posing as journalism students and rent a car and cross over into Jordan and then sneak into where were you trying to sneak into Iraq or Iran into Iraq yeah Iraq so so that's the one that you described as kind of having happened by accident like the plan was to sneak into Iraq that didn't instead of that happening this you know this lengthy interrogation that was somewhat frightening intentionally so I mean when yeah. you are interrogated they are trying to frighten you they're trying to activate this whole uh, system, this whole endocrine system that we've been talking about on this show, uh, they're trying to make that happen. But you, it wasn't entirely an accident. You were seeking a different kind of interestingly stressful experience. I mean, 99.9% of our listeners have never thought about sneaking into Iraq.
0: Yeah, and it's possible that I was just kind of naive and stupid about the whole thing. I met a, a fellow Canadian who was at the same school, and he convinced me that we should travel around in the Middle East. And the reason was simply he'd just not been there before. So that was the plan: going to Iraq with fake press visas. You know, you go down to the embassy and get a visa. Uh, I guess I was technically a student journalist uh, at the university I was at, so we made up these credentials. And then our plan was simply to just get in a car and, and drive. From Amman, Jordan to Baghdad, which is a seven hours through moonscape desert, I expect it would actually have been very, very boring. Mm. So, you know, again, it's, it's a bit like the story is great. Mm. It's, you know, 99% of your listeners uh, would never sort of do that, which also means that they are – most of the people hearing the story are populating the experience with their imagination. Mm. The people's imaginations tend to favor things that are extreme or afraid or, uh, or this sort of thing
4: so one of the things that i did to prepare myself for the show was to uh... it was the deeply scholarly experience of rewatching Point Break, the Keanu Reeves and uh, Patrick Swayze movie about <laughs> surfers who are bank robbers. You're laughing. I think you've probably seen this movie. And so this is about people who are, in fact, the term adrenaline junkie actually appears in the movie. So it's about these surfers who are seeking the biggest wave, the biggest wave. The you know They may pursue a cyclonic storm to find the wave that comes after it. But it also, that whole notion sucks them into an even wilder updraft. They become bank robbers as well. And you hear them in their conversation say that, you know, they understand the things that they are doing will probably lead to their premature death. One of them says, I don't expect to be alive by the time I'm thirty. But the other thing that they say is, however, if I if I do die this way, if I'm crushed by a wave, you know, that's great. That's fine. That's sort of part of what I'm doing right now. And I guess I'm wondering what does I mean you're sort of in a different phase right now where You know, I mean, these guys can't get off the carousel, right? They just don't. They don't know how to do it. Most of us do. Even if we have these adrenaline periods in our life, we can get off the carousel and then look back and go, wow, that was crazy. I'm not doing that now. Uh, I feel so good about the fact that I got through it and I'm not doing it anymore. But what about that notion? Like, well, okay, I'm doing something a lot more risky than just walking to work today. So I might die and that's Is Is that how you feel? Sort of. I think
0: I think what I feel is that there is a vast spectrum between I'm just walking to work today and I'm going to search out the largest wave on Earth and maybe die surfing it. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot more adrenaline-inducing, exciting, great story material that falls well short of surfing the giant wave. Mm-hmm. But I do actively stay on the side of the spectrum that is more risky than not.
4: Right. You're over the 50% line anyway, uh, or something like that. Chris Graham, thank you so much for talking to us. Chris Graham, freelance writer for The Morning News. You can read Diary of a Post-Adrenaline Junkie. Thanks for being with us today, Chris. Thanks so much, Colin. I really appreciate it. sorry it wasn't more exciting. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye Bye now.
2: (laughs) Some people like to skydive or bungee jump to get an adrenaline rush, but I like to go to best pro shops and put Hillary 2016 bumper stickers on pickup trucks.